G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. Thank you so much for having me. Before I start today, I do want to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm coming to you today from a Wobbicle land in Australia where I live and work and where it's 3am. Today is a public holiday officially called Australia Day. It marks the anniversary of the day British military invaded this continent and is also known as Invasion Day or Survival Day. So it feels particularly important for me today as a white woman on Aboriginal land to acknowledge the impact of invasion, colonisation and ongoing racism on the traditional custodians of this place. One of the many examples of that impact is that when we're talking about alcohol and other drug use, Aboriginal people are disproportionately targeted by police and incarcerated at a significantly higher rate. Today, we mourn that harm and celebrate the strength and survival of the world's oldest continuous culture. The painting on your screen, which is so beautiful, is by Kate Forbes Walker, my friend and colleague and proud Birupai woman living on Awabakal land. The bright colours represent hope for the future and for change, and when she posted it online, she wrote, my culture has survived. My culture is alive. So let's move into today's today's conversation about occupation. My name's Karina Sanson Fisher. I'm an occupational therapist and I work in both public health and private practice. And my primary practice area is alcohol and other drugs, although I do continue to do some mental health work. In addition to my day job, I like communicating with people about concepts of alcohol and other drugs, mental health and occupational therapy through little drawings, and you'll see some of those today. Unlike some of the amazing presenters for All About Occupation, I'm not an academic and all I have to offer you is my experience and my learnings. So today we'll explore my experience of the occupational therapy role in alcohol and other drugs, and some of the ways I've maintained an occupational focus in doing this work. We're doing drugs today. Let's start with a case study. A 21-year-old woman who describes a range of interests, including female-fronted punk bands, warehouse parties, writing, making zines, and sitting in cafes with friends, smoking cigarettes, and drinking coffee. Her role as a friend and a member of her communities is very important to her, and she has a strong sense of social justice. She didn't finish high school, but enjoys learning. She got into university to do politics and sociology through an alternative entry exam before deciding this wasn't right for her. She's interested in finding a career that works for her at some point, but right now enjoys working in hospitality. She also describes using alcohol and other drugs, including whatever's in that glass and whatever's in that hand-rolled cigarette she's looking lovingly towards and whatever else she might take later this night. When you meet our case study, she's describing alcohol and other drug use as something she values and enjoys, 
not as a barrier or a problem or a health risk. Here's that same woman from our case study. She's now 40 years old and she's an occupational therapist. And in case it wasn't already obvious, she's me. I'm her. There's almost 20 years between those two photos, and so there was a lot of being and doing and becoming that happened in between. Punk houses and learning about mutual aid and radical mental health care and falling in love and illness and loss. And I'm realising getting my eyebrows back after overplucking them in the 90s and all kinds of things. I still enjoy female-fronted punk bands and writing and cafes, but you couldn't pay me enough to go to a warehouse party. I don't smoke and I do drink, but much less and much more expensively. And I don't use any other drugs currently apart from caffeine. Professionally, I eventually went back to university to specifically to train and work as an occupational therapist in mental health. And I was very sure that was the area I wanted to work in. I would have predicted staying in that space, preferably in inpatient units for my entire career. When I graduated, I did work in mental health inpatient units and it was meaningful work, but I did struggle with maintaining occupational focus or centre. I was doing occupation with people, cooking and art and all kinds of group work, but I wasn't really sure if I was supporting people to do the things they need and want to do in their lives rather than in their admissions. That's not to say that other people aren't doing high-quality, occupationally-centred work in mental health inpatient units because I know for a fact that they are. It's just that at that stage in my career, I was personally having a really hard time tapping into how to translate the theory into practice. And I was having a hard time connecting with my profession in a lot of ways. So it was a real gift for me to move into a space where the occupational therapy was less defined and I had to do work around defining it for myself. I worked in a dual diagnosis, mental health and substance use unit, where I developed an interest in working in alcohol and other drugs, which is where I've been working for the last few years as a counsellor and then an occupational therapist and then a senior and including providing leadership and discipline-specific consultation to a wide health service that had a really limited knowledge of what it is that occupational therapists do. And the whole way through, obviously, I've still been that first young woman. My interests and my experiences and my viewpoints have kept shaping what I do and how I do it. I did think today about trying to explain exactly where occupational therapy fits among a wide multidisciplinary team and what the various evidence bases are for some of the transdisciplinary work that we all do. And I also thought and genuinely tried for at least one slide to explain where I sit in terms of the theoretical understandings of alcohol and other drug use and addiction between brain disease and choice and learning. 
but I came to the conclusion that I'm probably not the best person to present on some parts of that, and I'm lucky that I don't have to. So instead, I decided to stay firmly in scope and just flag with you some of the theoretical underpinnings that have shaped my understanding of the role from an occupational therapy point of view. Essentially, I consider alcohol and other drugs to be an occupation. Just like these ones. Some of them have the light of occupational therapy shone on them, and some are more stigmatised than others. But they're all things that we do. I'm grateful for these authors, among others, for giving us the theory to conceptualise this. I'm particularly grateful to Bex Twinley for allowing me to understand the fullness of occupation, if I can make a moon pun, and therefore the fullness of my role. Finding her work made me see that I had a way to be an occupational therapist while being that first young woman we looked at. I have to say I'm also really grateful to Emmeline Chang because she wrote an article in 2008 that so clearly and simply lays out the way in which alcohol and other drug use is an occupation that I refer back to it in practice and supervision and education all the time. I printed it out multiple times and pushed it across a table to convince people that, yes, this was absolutely my business. It allowed me to make a slide that I use a lot with a summary of some of the benefits and risks of this occupation. This other column is obviously referencing another author about the experience of ballet. And I think lining them up this way is kind of a nice way to start to think about alcohol and other drug use from a morally neutral perspective. If we were in person now, I would say to you, what's different about this? Why are these ones treated? And I think we know the answer is stigma. People use alcohol and other drugs for a variety of reasons. Michael Carden, who's a leader in harm reduction in the States, apparently often says, drug use has many meanings worth understanding. And it sticks in my head and I like it because I think you could say that about a whole range of occupations. I think if we went back to my blotchy drawing, many of those things have many meanings worth understanding. Some of the, the reasons that people have described for the why of alcohol and other drug use are to relax, for enjoyment, to be part of a group, to avoid pain, to experiment, excitement, rebellion, coping with problems, relieving stress and overcoming boredom. Those aren't the only reasons and there's probably as many reasons to use drugs and alcohol and other drugs as there are people. You can probably think about some of those reasons for yourself, whether it's drinking coffee or a more stigmatised drug. 
I think it's really important for me to note that people I work with don't really represent all people who use alcohol and other drugs. My clients are usually people who can be described as having alcohol and other drug problems and often have diagnoses of substance use disorder. And that's because that's who accesses alcohol and other drug treatment, right? People who want or need treatment. But of course, not every person who uses alcohol and other drugs goes on to develop a problem in this area. And of those people who do go on to develop problems, not everyone requires treatment. Of those people who require treatment, not everyone has the same goals. I don't want to present people who use drugs as a monolith while I'm talking in generalities. So I guess now that we've kind of established a little bit of the theoretical underpinnings and my own professional and personal interests, I want to get to the bit I always want to know when someone else presents, which is like, okay, great, but now tell me how that looks in practice. First, we'll look quickly at some language and some engagement styles and then identify some of the occupational concerns we see in alcohol and other drug use settings. Um, and then we'll have a quick look at one occupational therapy intervention as an example of some of the work that we might do. So when working with stigmatised populations, it's so important to minimise how much we contribute to stigma. You might have noticed today that I use the relatively clunky term alcohol and other drugs, which even I stumble over a little because it is lengthy. Or sometimes I might have said substances or uh, substance use, and that might be different from the language that you use locally. This is a local table for me. It's adapted from the Alcohol and Drug Foundation, and it's the guide that I use for my language, although I absolutely make mistakes and use outdated terms. Um, despite the length of that term, I do like alcohol and other drug use because it positions alcohol as just one of a range of drugs, not particularly clinically different than other drugs, just legal, which doesn't have a clinical implication, apart from, you know, the way it brings us in contact with the justice system. Um, I do prefer it over substance use, which is quicker and easier, because it's plain language and it doesn't need a lot of explaining for people who haven't heard that language before. I say use rather than misuse or abuse because it removes the moral judgment and stigma. And I also find misuse kind of inaccurate. If a person intends to get high and uses a drug that gets them high and then gets high, I don't consider that misuse of the drug. I consider it an effective use of tools. 
I'm aware that misuse is language that's used in services and maybe unavoidable for some folks. The services I work for call themselves drug and alcohol services, which is kind of illogical, like um, the thing that contains it. Sometimes we just have to live with that. Um, I will just flag that this table is for clinicians and workers. So while you'll see that addict and alcoholic and clean can be stigmatising language, it's absolutely not for me, for us, to police the language of people with lived experience when they self-identify. There's lots of people who find that language accurate and empowering and very, very useful when they're describing themselves, and we would never make a correction on someone's self-ID. In terms of engaging with people about alcohol and other drugs, um, I obviously will not go into a whole presentation about motivational interviewing, but keeping the spirit of motivational interviewing in mind is really helpful. Um, the creators of motivational interviewing have been very clear that it's not a set of strategies as such. It's a spirit. It's a vibe. And it's a vibe is funnier if you're Australian or have watched The Castle. But that's how I hold it in my mind. It's the vibe. Even if you aren't going to do motivational interviewing, it's based on three key elements collaboration between the therapist and the client, evoking and drawing out the client's ideas about change, and emphasising the autonomy of the client. One of the other principles, not spirit, but principles of motivational interviewing that I think is important is supporting self-efficacy and highlighting people's internal resources and strengths. I usually do this with a combination of strength cards and using the Carwell model, but there's obviously lots of ways to look at strengths and self-efficacy. It's also useful to employ a curiosity of a very specific nature. Asking what and where and how and how much and how recently to try and tap into some of those multiple meanings worth understanding and also in order to be able to record things accurately. Users illicit drugs tells me very little apart from some legal information. Users cannabis as an anxiety management strategy, currently smoking 30 cones daily, using a glass bong, interested in reduction tells me a lot more and it means that I have somewhere to go, that we, myself and the client, know if reduction is happening. It's also a way of combating stigma. So it's not a topic that we can't talk about. It's a topic that we're curious about and we're interested about and we want to know the details. Finally, staying occupational. What does it mean in the, other, in the context of other occupations? I originally wrote in the, what does it mean in the full moon of a person's occupational experience, but I do not think that's an endorsed way of using that particular metaphor. 
So let's look at staying occupational in this role via some quotes from folks that we work with. The first three are really about occupational performance issues, or at least that's the language that I learned at university, um, in the context of co-occurring or related conditions. Since I got sick, I can't take care of myself. And I meant to go, but I just forgot. And I really want to, but I get overwhelmed. Unfortunately, some of the people I work with have substance use related illness or disability, things like peripheral neuropathy or liver disease. We also know that there's higher rates of cognitive deficit and PTSD in people diagnosed with substance use disorders. And the co-occurring nature of substance use and other mental health diagnoses is a whole other presentation. But really what we're looking at here can be thought of as challenges with self-care tasks and maybe with responsibilities, depending on how you conceptualise engaging with healthcare as an occupation. Um, interventions here might be aimed at skills building or compensatory approaches in the same way that they would if these occupational challenges were presenting in the absence of alcohol and other drug use. I just want to note that there's also potential here for a distress tolerance strategy um, delivered alongside occupation, but there's also some really interesting work being done by Michelle Taylor, an Australian OT, um, and others about using sensory strategies in alcohol and other drugs and exploring the sensory components of use. Um, you can find Michelle's work at Insight Queensland, um, and it really is an incredible and practical look at using senses to cope in this setting. Our final two are more directly about what's happening with substance use, even in the absence of any co-occurring challenges. I used to spend all day using, and now my days are empty. Here's how we know this can be a significant problem for people who have substance use problems. It's in the DSM. So one of the criteria for a substance use disorder is spending substantial amount of the day obtaining, using or recovering from substance use, giving up social leisure or professional activities, which of course I would translate into occupation if I could, because of substance use. This one's interesting for me because even when other professionals or actually even other occupational therapists are having difficulty understanding what the occupational therapy role in this setting is, our clients do get it. They know very well about the way that one occupation can fill up a day so that there's no room for anything else, causing an occupational imbalance, even if they don't use those words. And that, of course, the physical and psychological and social elements of substance use and of change are incredibly important, but so is what we do and how we spend our day. 
interventions in this space I'm sure is bringing to your mind immediately. They might be aimed at time use or exploring new or previously valued occupations, using leisure checklists, developing routines supportive of wellness when working towards abstinence or reduction. This is maybe the most core OT that we get. Um, so often when people are talking about core occupational therapy, I hear them talking about a more physical setting. But this is what I went to university to learn about. How do you spend your day? How do we make it satisfying? Our last one is I'm trying to stay safe. And this one speaks to some of the risks associated with alcohol and other drug use. For some people and for some patterns of use, that might include risk of overdose or bloodborne virus or abscesses or any number of harms. Those are harms that could be addressed by abstinence or from a pragmatic point of view, for instance, um, providing information about safer use or overdose prevention or providing sterile injecting equipment or sharp spins. This one is interesting because it can be the place where people feel uncomfortable or think that it's someone else in the team's job or it's out of scope. And it's for sure okay to feel uncomfortable. No one should feel pressured into a new practice area without good knowledge and experience and training. And it also might be someone else's job. So if there's a doctor or a nurse or a peer worker or a social worker or a psychologist or a health education officer or some member of the team that I will later have to apologise to for forgetting they exist and they're doing harm reduction work, that's great. It can absolutely be any of those people's responsibility and some might feel more comfortable, but I would argue that it's probably everyone's responsibility to at least consider the safety of the people we work with and I would not agree that it's out of scope. I think of it as difficulties with safely completing daily occupations. I think of this one as core occupational therapy. There's activity and task modifications and compensatory approaches and skills and education, sort of like things that I admit I have not done in my career, like taping down rugs or equipment or hip precautions, none of which I hear people saying is out of scope. The frame of reference here is harm reduction. So harm reduction could be needle and syringe programs, and that's often what comes to mind, or education on safer use, but you can also describe seatbelts in cars as a harm reduction strategy. People are doing this thing that is risky. Let's reduce the risk and reduce the harm without eliminating the behaviour. Harm reduction means accepting that drugs and risky behaviours are part of society that will never be eliminated. 
It means placing the focus on reducing the harm associated with risky behaviours rather than reducing or eliminating the behaviour itself. It's meeting the individual where they're at and working with them to minimise the effects of a harmful behaviour. It's honouring individual choices, resisting condemnation and refraining from judgement. And it's setting practical goals by focusing on immediate achievable objectives rather than unrealistic expectations. Hopefully, you can see how that lines up with occupational therapy when we do it well. If we re return to this spectrum, this very high-tech graph, harm reduction strategies are useful all the way along that line. So this quote, that it's painfully obvious that a lot of drug deaths are linked to ignorance and there's a lot we could do to avoid them by providing the most basic information plays in my head a lot. So if there's a need for people to know more, what's a way we can do that that's occupational? There's probably lots of ways honestly, but this is one way that I've used to give you an idea of staying occupational, staying in our lane and providing harm reduction. So it's a card game and we're going to have a little practice run in a minute and hopefully I've done the slides right. The rules as we set them up um, when I play with clients are that it is okay not to know something, it's okay to laugh because sometimes the topics are weird or silly and often we're yelling over the top of each other. It's not okay to laugh at anyone. Um, where we vote, so in the group, we might yell true or false, but today I'm going to ask you to react. So you're going to use a thumbs up for true when I read the statement and a laughing face for false. So what would happen in the group is that one person would read the statement and then we would all vote, everyone in the room, any staff must include themselves in this vote on whether a statement is true or false. Um, sometimes the answers are really clear cut and I've included some of those today. And sometimes it's not 100% clear if it's true or false and that's an amazing jumping off point. We use that as an opportunity for a discussion. What do people know? What else could we do? What strategies have we thought about? And I've learned some really amazing things from clients in this space because people try to keep themselves safe when and how they can. And harm reduction is a community movement. So that knowledge has been shared from peer to peer um, and it gives us an opportunity to tap into some of that knowledge while mixing it with some um, evidence. Okay, so it feels weird doing that this without being able to see anyone, but our first question is 
if someone overdoses on opioids, there's nothing that can be done. So you're going to give a thumbs up if that's true and a laughy face if that's false. I'll just keep this you with Rena. There's lots of <laughs> laughing faces there. I was just going to give you an up to date. Lots of laughing faces <laughs> that I saw. Thank you. It's weird not being able to say it. I'll ask you. I think we've got three or four of these, so I'll ask you to check. So, excellent. It's a reminder for people playing the game that naloxone, which reverses an opioid, opioid overdose by attaching to opioid receptors and reversing and blocking the effects, exists. It's also an opportunity to talk about overdose generally and what we can do ourselves as well as who we can call. Our next one is it's safe to reuse your own injecting equipment as long as you don't share with others. So thumbs up for true, laughing face for false. Okay, I'll report in. I can see a lot of laughing faces right now. You're all very excellent at this. Mm. False. So it is safer to keep your injecting equipment to yourself rather than share, but a dull needle can cause additional skin trauma and there's risks associated with that. Next one is glass bongs are safer than plastic. Thumbs up for true, laughing face for false. Okay, I'll report in. We've got lots of thumbs up. True. As you know, heating plastic and breathing it in is to be avoided when we can. Harm reduction enables substance use. Thumbs up for true, laughing face for false. Ooh, we had a bit of a mixed mixture there, but still more laughing faces than thumbs up. False. No evidence currently that um, harm reduction will increase substance use um, and the popular t-shirt design says the only thing harm reduction enables is breathing. So that indication that um, folks who do not have an opportunity to have harm reduction do not have an opportunity to survive and reach recovery if that's their goal. Harm reduction is the opposite of abstinence. Thumbs up for true, laughing face for false. Okay, majority, yeah, actually all are laughing faces. False. Um, uh, harm reduction is an approach which includes abstinence. Sometimes, like you, people get almost every single question right, which is awesome. It gives us an opportunity to reflect on how much someone knows and to actively participate in talking about safer practices. Sometimes people don't know a lot of the answers and that's awesome too because then people have an opportunity to learn, often from their peers, shown to be the most meaningful way of having this information delivered, about staying safer while engaging in this occupation. I hope that that's been a useful 
way of thinking about how we might do occupational therapy in this space. Before I finish up today, I have been told that you shouldn't ask clients to do things that you yourself would be unwilling to do. And one of the things I've suggested here is that we explore a person's own internal strengths and resources. I often do that using strength cards. Um, and I'm going to flick quickly through eight, I think it's eight, strengths and ask you which one of these strengths you have and are going to utilise either in your work directly with folks who use alcohol and other drugs, which statistically will happen for those of you in clinical practice, or in your work with or related to people who engage in other stigmatised occupations. So, as I go through these, I'd love if you could pick one and hold it in your mind um, and maybe put it in the chat, which I can't currently see, but we'll be able to when we finish sharing. The framing for this particular strength statement is going to be an I will be, but I just need to hear your strength. I was about to say, does that make sense? I can't see your faces. I will just move on. So, I will be. Will you be setting practical goals, a mainstay of harm reduction and of occupational therapy? Will you be curious in your engagement with folks? Will you be hopeful and holding hope for the people we work with who often desperately need that? Will you be non-judgmental, allowing people to come to you with their stories and with their many meanings worth exploring? Will you be honouring choice, even if it's not the choice that you would make? Will you be collaborative and working with people to make goals together? Will you be meeting people where they are rather than having expectations about where they should be? Or will you have this kind of wild card strength? Um, is there another strength that you have that will help you in your work in this space or your work related to people who engage in stigmatised occupations? I want to leave you with two quotes and hopefully one of them does something for you. Daniel Raymond, who's the policy director for the Harm Reduction Coalition in the state, said this, at its heart, the harm reduction movement is a family of dreamers, radicals and outsiders, tempering anger with hope, fighting stigma and marginalisation with love. That one resonates with me about the kind of person I want to be and you can probably feel in that the echoes of that first case study, not just the kind of professional that I want to be. If that one doesn't do anything for you, if maybe it's a little too romantic, maybe this one will, by Terry Pratchett in Hatful of Sky. There isn't a way things should be. There's just what happens and what we do. 
Thank you so much for listening to me today. I look forward to questions if you have any. I will stop sharing now. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.